Hi, welcome to I Wanna Change the World. I'm your host, Janae Gilmore. That thought, I wanna change the world, has been a guiding force behind so many decisions in my career and in my life in general. But what does it actually look like for me, or anyone really, to change the world? On this podcast, you'll hear about my ongoing journey to figure out my place in creating a better world. As you listen, I invite you to reflect on yours. Let's get ready to change the world together. Hi, and welcome to the podcast. I am happy to report to you, for those of you who've been tracking, that, yeah, I now have my passport back with my residency permit in it. And that means that I can stay in Ghana until May of next year, if I so choose. One of the guys who I mentioned in the last podcast episode, Solomon, he surprised me yesterday. He handed me an envelope and I'm like, oh, what's this? And I open it and it's the passport. He went and got it and surprised me. And then just this morning, the other one who I mentioned in the podcast episode from last time, Frank, I mean, it wasn't even 8 a.m. and I was calling him up here to get a lizard out of my room. So these guys are staying busy and they're still looking out for me. Anyway, I don't want to waste any time getting into today's episode. I am honestly just grateful to be able to bring you this interview that I had a chance to do with Noel Ojo, who is the author of The Black Zit Effect, The African American's Guide to Relocating to Africa. And she's also a foreign service officer with USAID. Now, from the time an acquaintance connected me to Noel, I already had it in mind that we would have a really interesting conversation just talking about her book, which I got a hold of at a time where I was just just getting past the honeymoon phase of being in Ghana. And I was officially on the struggle bus as I was navigating some practical challenges, just like basic stuff related to getting my SIM card registered. But I was also starting to run up against what I would call culture clash, not culture shock. Just um, the reality that some of my expectations and the culture of where I am just don't align. And that to keep my sanity, I need to reframe my expectations to be in better alignment, actually. And honestly, getting a copy of her book and seeing all the wisdom that she was sharing in the book about both the practical aspects and the sort of mindset and cultural aspects of relocating to Africa made me wish that I had encountered it before I even set off on this journey. But I'm grateful at least that I'm able to share it with you as a resource. If you've ever considered relocating to Africa, whether it's for a lifetime or just some months, So I knew we were going to have an interesting conversation just based on a lot of the ideas that she brings up in the book. But what I didn't know and couldn't have known is that our conversation would turn into such a, to me, beautiful meditation on what it means to be Black American in Africa, but also just Black and American in Africa, but also just at home it's not every single day that I consciously think about it, but both of those things, being black and being American, shape my lens of you in the world in a very powerful way. It also shapes the lens through which the world views me. That's something else that I've run up against here. But anyway, let's get into this interview with Noel. Noel, welcome to the podcast. 
Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor and pleasure to be here. So tell us a bit about who you are. What do you do? I mean, I just gave a little blurb, but tell us who you are. Okay. I love that question because there's so many ways you can go, right? So as mm-hmm. you mentioned, my name is Noelle Ojo, born Noelle Wright Young, originally from Brooklyn, New York, but then uh, as a teenager, moved to the DC metro area. So that's really home for me now, where most of my family resides. And I've been a foreign service officer now, off and on for close to 20 years, uh, about 17 years. And wow. um, I was a foreign service officer first with the Department of State, um, where I served in Lagos, Nigeria, and in Yaoundé, Cameroon. And then more recently, I'm a foreign service officer and currently with USAID, USAID. And I served in Dakar, Senegal, and in Accra, Ghana. I'm now back in the Washington area, though, I'm on assignment I'm here back home. So um that's essentially me. I, I, I am, I'm a family rattler, went to Florida A&M University undergrad. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, I can't get away with not saying that. <laughs> and then I'm also a barred attorney. Um, I went to NYU School of Law. Um, and that's actually, it's there that I first kind of had my first entree into the continent. So I can talk about, a bit about that later. Um, mm-hmm. but, but yeah, but I never practiced. I immediately joined the Foreign Service. So I've been, I've been doing this since 2002. Yeah. So that's that's me, I guess, in a nutshell. What I got from when we had our pre-interview was that this idea of wanting to change the world has been with you throughout your life path, sort of guiding your career. And I want to know where that came from for you and what it's meant for you throughout your journey. Okay, so I think the first time in terms of wanting to change the world and like having an impact. So two things. One, Rodney King. I was about 16 when that happened, and I was devastated, I think, as most Black folks were. But as a young person, just seeing, you know, the the injustice in all mm-hmm. of it, um, and I felt that law was the way to address that. I felt like if he wasn't, if the system wasn't the way, it, you know, the criminal justice system wasn't the way it was, if policing wasn't the way it was, if we had adequate representation, you know, all those things. And, you know, mm-hmm. in the past, that was how as Black folks, when we made any improvements and advancements, it was through the legal system, right? When you look at Brown versus Board of Ed and our education, all those Mm -hmm. different things. So that was like my first initial, like, I want to do something to impact others and and to change society. And that's what drew me to law school. So I knew at 16, I was going to end up in law school. But ideally, it was, you know, initially, it was to do probably, you know, like criminal defense work, public defender work, things along Mm -hmm. those lines. But then my first year in law school, I had an opportunity to, so NYU has a really um, robust like public interest focus and program. And so they gave us, I got a grant to go overseas. Um, and so I took that opportunity to go to, I went to Kenya. That was my first time overseas period. I like got my first passport at 23 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, first time abroad was to Nairobi, Kenya. And I worked at a legal aid clinic. It was called FIDA Kenya. And it was like a women's rights legal aid clinic. And I just fell in love with the idea of living overseas, working overseas, supporting others. It was just fascinating to me. Then I met another like African-American woman who was out there. I think at the time she was working for like the League of Women Voters. And she was like, like, this is her life. Like she's doing international stuff. And I'm like, I want to do that, you know? And Mm -hmm. so when I came back, I did like the second summer, I did the whole law firm thing just to confirm that I didn't want to do it. And then (laughs) then I took the foreign service exam 
10 days after 9-11 in New York City, which is interesting, right? Because yes. the towers had just fell yes. and we, you know, I, we couldn't even go to class. Wow. But more people showed up for that exam than typically because I think there was this new sense of like patriotism a little bit. You wanted to be involved in what was going on. I was going to tell you regardless, but so <laughs> I, I, I passed and then I took the oral assessment in April. So before I graduated from law school in 2002, I knew that I was joining the foreign service. And so I joined a class in November of 2002. Um, and then I was assigned to Lego. So by March of 2003, I was out there. But anyway, all of that was part of like this kind of, you know, wanting to change the world, wanting to impact the world in some way. Mm-hmm. I was just really committed to that. And that just felt like I, it shifted from doing it in the States, working on like maybe criminal justice and what we were dealing with as Black folks here, just to a broader, a broader scale, you mm-hmm. know, impacting lives overseas, ideally. So yeah, that was, that was the motivation. So you told us a little bit about what led you to travel to Africa in the first place. But my question is, well, always when I speak to someone from the West, but especially another African-American, the predominant narrative that we absorb, like I know I absorbed, is that Africa is this scary place. It's like full of poverty and disease and violence and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. What was it that made you willing and interested to go to Kenya in the first place? Okay. So as I mentioned, I grew up in Brooklyn. So automatically, I was not unfamiliar with the idea of like Black people who were not from the United States, like a lot of Caribbean influence, obviously, like knew a lot of Trinidadians and Jamaicans and and things like that. And even growing up, I had uh, people from Nigeria and Ghana in my class, you know, in the 80s in Brooklyn. Mm. So it wasn't completely foreign. Definitely still got those messages because, you know, growing up in the 80s, that's when Ethiopia had its famine. You would see all these these horrible images. But at the same time, I happened to know people where that was not the case, right? Physically engaging. I don't think it maybe scared me as much, like I understood. And then even once we moved to the DC metro area, incredibly diverse population here as well. And so like, I remember I babysat for a woman, you know, they were from Ethiopia and, you know, and so you just, I just was fascinated with it. I think I mentioned before my first real... <laughs> fascination with the continent too happened when I was 10 watching the color purple so it's one of my all-time favorite films went to see it when I was about 10 with my best friend and my mom the movie to me framed the continent like in such a beautiful way and so even at 10 I was like wow it's a it's a beautiful place to be so I I appreciated that and so I was always just yeah I I was interested in that mm-hmm And I should have started off framing for folks. So one, from the time I had the pre-interview chat with Noelle, I already knew like I was going to have to have her back because I do plan to do a series in the future called I'm Black, but am I doing it right? We're going to dig into this much (laughs) more then, but we got to take a little detour from the whole Africa front because I really need to understand like what led you to go to an HBCU. Tell me about that. So when I was growing up in Brooklyn and it was all basically black and Latino, but like the Latinos in Brooklyn, you know, they're Puerto Rican or Dominican, mostly Puerto Rican. And I actually went to like a gifted and talented school in Brooklyn and this, you know, New York city. So my understanding of like black excellence and stuff, like I just, mm-hmm. I didn't have any, I just knew that we could be as talented as anybody else. When I moved to the suburbs here in the DC area, I was in Montgomery County, Maryland. And you got to immediately see that there was like a, it was almost like to be intelligent or to be interested in academics, that was a white thing. 
and then only the black, you know, but I, again, never bought into that stereotype. You know, I was just like, that's not the case. And so um, by the time I finished school in high school, I just, you know, I always did well in high school. I had, you know, friends, most, you know, there was only a handful of black folks uh, there. A lot of us were friends with each other. I think some of my other colleagues probably integrated and assimilated a little more than I did. Because remember, mm-hmm. I'm coming from Brooklyn. I'm not assimilating in that same <laughs> same way. I had no interest in doing that. So I was me. And they used to call me like Little Oprah and Little Sister Soldier because I was like, <laughs> you know. But I, you know, I had the respect of my peers and even my teachers. But I was always very, I, I was wearing natural hair at 16, twist out. What? Like you didn't have a relaxer growing up, girl? Maybe at different times and like maybe in college I had it once or twice, but almost always had naturals and braids. Wow. I can probably count on one hand the number of times I've had like a relax relaxed hair. You could catch wow. a picture or two here and there, but like, yeah. So I was doing that back in the day, you know, and I had family like, why are you wearing your hair like that? you know, that whole thing. <laughs> so I just so was definitely amazing. like on a different tip a little bit mm-hmm, um, back mm-hmm. then. And I just didn't. So to answer like why, so by the time it was time for me to graduate. Like I did Spelman early decision. I'm like, I'm out of here and I need to be around <laughs> black excellence again. You know, I had a teacher pull me to the, so at the time, this is like in, I'm telling my age, but I was like, it was like 94 and Spelman college was like the number one school in the South. And I had a teacher pull me to the side, white guy. And he was like, you know, Noel, you're so talented. You're so smart. Why would you go to a black school? I mean, why can't you go to like, wow. or something like that. And, and I was like, do, do you know what and who Spellman is? Like, but he was really thought he was helping mm-hmm. me and doing mm-hmm. me a favor, like legit, mm-hmm. you know? And so I just couldn't wait to get away from that. I needed to be shored up again with, and then, and because I had lived that experience, I had been in academic, like challenging academic settings with black and Latino people. I knew it existed. Whereas mm-hmm. I think sometimes when, when I, the, from the black folks that I've met that grew up like entirely in the suburbs and enti- they don't even know that that can exist. And so they won't even entertain like a black school because it, it does, it, some of them won't even, it can't even imagine that this could be mm-hmm. as good as a white school or mm-hmm. am I getting the same, you know, what am I giving up academically? And you know what I mean? But I knew that that was a myth and I knew that I could get a stellar education at a black. So I ended up at FAMU. That's a whole nother thing. Cause so I ended up going to FAMU on a full <laughs> academic scholarship. So that's where I went. And I had a fantastic experience. And even on, on a personal level, it was where I needed to be. And I had an awesome experience there. But that's what took me there. It's like just getting back to being surrounded by where I could just be myself. Because that's, mm-hmm. I think, what a lot of HBCUs bring to people is that you can just, you're a student. You're, you're a good student. You're a bad student. You're a focused student. You're, a, you're not focused student. You're just a student. And you're not the Black girl in the class or the Black girl mm-hmm. into this or or no one's, you know, questioning whether you deserve to be there. And, and, and you feel that in those other spaces, whether you're conscious of it or not. Sometimes it takes people years to understand what they were feeling. Uh-huh. If you've never felt anything different, you don't realize that until, until later. And so that's, the, so that's what brought me to an, an HBCU. And yeah, the value, I think it, it held for me. I think being in, um, at an HBCU just helps because I'm always comfortable around people that look like me. I think mm-hmm. the saddest thing in the world is when I see black folks that are uncomfortable around other black folks. You know what I mean? Mm. I think that is just so sad. Mm. <laughs> and there's a lot of people that do that. You know, that's too many black folks. That's all I'm like, are you crazy? You ever hear anybody else say that about their people? You know what I mean? But yeah, so I um I enjoy the company 
of and the, the culture of of uh, people that look like me and, and and learning all the differences and the nuances because that's the thing about like living in so many different countries and every culture every country even tribes within a place have has their unique uh, attributes and culture mm-hmm. and traditions and practices and I think it's just fascinating course, having lived in so many different places, you really have the bird's eye view, a sample of what those differences are. And I'm just wondering if you could give it like paint a picture for us of how you experience those places. To be fair, most of my, a lot of my intense experiences in West Africa. So I'll, I'll preface it with that. Mm-hmm. I've had, okay. you know, smaller, less exposure to East, you know, definitely some exposure. I lived it for a little while, but, and then I went to Southern Africa for the first time, uh, actually last year. That's my first time going to South Africa. To be honest, I was avoiding it because I was so worried about, you know, the history and the mm-hmm. archive legacy. And I was like, mm-hmm. I'm not going somewhere to be having to deal with kind of the same foolishness we might have to deal with in the States. But I actually mm-hmm. had a really good time there. I will say that I had a, I had a good I had a very mm-hmm. positive experience, um, both in Johannesburg and in Cape Town. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, East Africa is just they're just it's a it's a more conservative culture. I think anybody would say that just in just how they are as people, very polite, kind, but it's more conservative as compared to West Africa. West Africa is, you know, it's more, it's louder, it's more vibrant, it's more, it's got a lot more energy and just, Mm -hmm. you know, and I think most people would say that. And so, yeah, so that's, and I felt immediately like, so when I, and I, you know, I talk about this in the book, like, you know, sometimes we have these, um, expectations of what we're going to experience or feel when we get off the plane and oh, I'm coming home. I didn't feel that in Kenya. It was, it was interesting. It was fascinating. I didn't necessarily feel like, you know, I'm walking around and the people look like the people I know. It was just, it was a different mm-hmm. place. Mm-hmm. Black people, but they were different. But when I stepped off the plane in Nigeria, because that was the next African country I went to when I was going for work, it was like, oh, okay, this is, <laughs> this is us. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah. Look like we clearly as Black Americans, we're from the West Coast, you know, of Africa and just- yeah. Um, for the, the vast majority, of course, not everyone, but like, and so it's just the culture, the people, you know, the food, the attitude, the way we talk, the way we dress, like it just felt so incredibly familiar. And so I immediately, I, I, I loved every country that I've lived in for different reasons, but I, I really enjoyed my time in, in Nigeria. And I, I ultimately, I spent two years there working there. And then I actually went back to Nigeria, private sector, not working with the U.S. government. I worked, worked for a Nigerian company. Um, so I was really embedded in the culture mm-hmm. when I was there. Like I, I didn't even know anybody at the embassy or at the consulate when I was there the, the second wow. time. Wow! Wow! Yeah, I was. I had a Nigerian boss and coworkers and everything. Like I lived on a local economy. It was. Um, it was. A, and I, I don't think I would have written a book had I not had that experience. Because me telling you about going overseas and my entire experience would have been, but the U.S. embassy is sponsoring me and they're giving me housing and they make. It's a completely different experience. Completely. Mm-hmm. And so my time in Nigeria and in Kenya, I think, gives me some level of experience and authority to even just chat about what it would be for a typical Black American to pack up and go, because that's mm-hmm. what I that's what I did in those circumstances. So I read chapter two of your book about cultural adaptation, and I felt okay. like we were at a party together and you were like the wise older sister who just pulled <laughs> me to the side and was like, Janae, I see you over there and I need you to know some things. So I wrote this whole chapter for you. <laughs> <laughs> I 
I'll take that as a compliment. Thank you. (laughs) Yes. yes. I thank you so much for for writing it seriously. But how did you cultivate that the level of really, I would say, openness and humility that essentially you're advocating for in the book that you need to approach these different cultures with? That's an interesting question. I think a couple of things. One, go back to my mom, Geraldine Wright, who she's very open and non-judgmental, accepts people. You know, so I think I grew up seeing her do that, like on every level, you know, Mm -hmm. whether it's just, you know, with our friends and neighbors and colleagues and coworkers. My my mother has friends from every socioeconomic background and all kind of places, you know, like, so seeing that, you know, she has Mm -hmm. friends from all over and other nations as well, you know, that kind of thing. So I think it was natural um, on some level. And then the other thing is when you start living abroad and you meet people just like you, you know, you're in Ghana, you're meeting people from they're there for a thousand different reasons, right? Sometimes they're there because their spouse is there or sometimes they're there because they're working with the embassy or they're working with a, with a big NGO or, NGO or big corporation or, or they just packed up and said, I'm out and I'm starting to, you know, shea butter business or whatever, right? There's a million <laughs> reasons. And so <laughs> I know you're laughing because you probably know people just like that. And the idea that like, I've seen so many people come. I've seen people come and stay and thrive and do really well. And then I've seen people come and crash and burn. Mm -hmm. And just, I think I just tried to mine general lessons for like those who did, who came and did well, were able to adapt. Even if they didn't stay long, they just came, they were there for maybe a couple of years, but they had a good experience and, you know, they would always be willing to come back. You know, they always, they they built roots and, and, and relationships versus those who didn't, do that. They didn't either, they didn't come prepared. They came with a really poor mindset uh, or attitude. And within six months to a year, they're gone and they're mad and they're broke and they're Mm -hmm. pissed, you know, (laughs) and then they come back Mm -hmm. and do TikToks about how horrible this country is. You know what I mean? (laughs) And it's like, that's not, it's not the country's fault that this was necessarily your experience. Now, mind you, some places are going to be a better match for you as a person than others. But, and that's, that's like with any place, right? Every place isn't going to resonate with you. Yeah, yeah. But I think there's ways to be prepared both like practically and then also like mentally. And so I just was trying to take lessons learned because I've definitely seen the savior America. I mean, and it breaks my heart when you hear Black Americans in particular talking like and these people and they're so backwards. And then, and I'm just like, oh God, it's just like, that's how others talk about us. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, you know what I mean? And it's yeah, like, yeah. You know, like, you have to really check yourself with that. And, and so, cause I always, that's the other thing. I think I, I replace some of that same dialogue. Like if these were white Americans talking about us, how would, is wow. that a valid statement? Wow. You know what uh-huh. I'm saying? Yeah. And so a lot of times it's not. And so it's like, you really need to check just like with us. Like, you know, I know this, like, we're not a monolith. Like it's black Americans. We're mm-hmm. all over the place. Right. Everybody's not on welfare. Everybody's not selling drugs. Everybody's not a, an Oprah and a mogul either. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. There's a lot of mm-hmm. in between. And so you don't want people making these general stereotypes around who we are. And it's easy to do as Americans because we are told that we are the best and we're from the best. And even again, if you don't want to embrace like your Americanness, it we are from this culture and you cannot help but have some of those same attitudes unless you really are conscious of it. And just that idea, you know, one of the other things is like, you can come to a country and we can immediately see the problems, right? Oh, the roads, yeah. or oh, this, oh, that. And it's like, 
they know those the, the problems exist too. It doesn't necessarily mean that they can change them immediately, right? And, yeah. and because it's not changed doesn't mean that they're not conscious of it, that they don't want to change it. Just like we, you come to the States, we have major issues. We have a drug, drug epidemic in the United States, period. We have a gun violence problem. We know that that's the issue. We can't change it. Yeah. It doesn't mean we're all idiots because we don't, we can't fix it. You know what I mean? It means that the powers that be in the things in place don't necessarily allow for that. And so just remembering that when you go to other places, that the average citizen is very aware of what the problems are, but can the average citizen change it? Probably not the same way we can't change the problems that we have in this country. I I hear you. And I'm just, <laughs> I guess I'm going to out myself. This is a confessional, but I'll, I'll give a quick example. So mm-hmm. looking around in, in Ghana, like pretty much all over, I'm assuming, but in cities like Accra, in many places there are open gutters, like whereas mm-hmm. we would have sidewalks with manhole covers every so often, they just have open gutters. And in my head, I'm like, man, it's just too bad they don't understand the technology that it takes to do sidewalks. You know, people are walking in the street. They got these gutters. Anyway, I go to to turn in my papers at immigration for my residency permit. And that entire area has really nice sidewalks. (laughs) And that's when it hit me. It's not that they don't understand that in some places there are sidewalks for other reasons that whatever, they just don't have them. But just the thought that I thought they've, they exist on this planet and just didn't understand how to do sidewalks. I mean, exactly. Yeah. And I'll, and I'll join you in being transparent because some of me learning that is not just me watching other people messing up is me. I've done, I've done that. I'll tell you a story. I was in Nigeria. This is the first time. So this is early on, like, oh, three, oh, four. And this idea that like, as the American, you, and funny enough, you know, Nigerians, there's a lot of wealthy Nigerians that could buy and sell you and I, you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Twice about it. Right. Yeah. But here I am. I remember I had gone to the movies. They had really nice movie theaters, Silverbird. And I see, and I, I had a really good relationship, like with my household right? The lady that worked for me and she had young children. So I would sometimes take them to the movies and we would have a good time. And I'm in the theater and I think I was by myself. Maybe I had gone to see a movie and I see a woman and she's with her son. And I just say, oh, you know, would you like me to buy you some popcorn? And, and I, and this lady looked at me like I had three heads, right? So she's like, look at it. And And it hit me. I'm like, oh my God, I'm assuming she can't afford it. She needs my help. That she was some, you know, like a house help that was just, you know, this is a treat to take a kid. She barely made it in. And if I thought about it, like, this is probably, a, you know, definitely middle class at be- at, at minimum woman. Mm-hmm. But for me to make that assumption, I was, I was ashamed of myself. And you know what's so funny? Fast forward, like, 10 years, that happened to me. I'm here in, oh, in the wow. deep. Yeah, I was with my children. We were home for the summer. It was just me. My husband wasn't with me. So it was like me, my two children and like a neighbor's kid. Like, so it was like three of us. We were just waiting. And I think we hadn't gotten popcorn yet because I like to get my seat. Then I go get the popcorn and all this. And this white guy and his daughter was like, oh, you know, we have an extra coupon for some popcorn. You want to get some popcorn, you know? And I'm like, no, I'm you sure? You know, I, I, and in my mind, I'm like, oh my God, he's assuming I can't afford it. I can't, you know, he doesn't know anything mm-hmm. about me. Mm-hmm. But he's, you know, here's this black woman with these three kids, you know, and maybe he's just yeah. being nice and he would have done it to anybody. But ah, 
it took me back to that, but I made that mistake, you know? Yeah. So it's that whole, yeah. you remember Chimamanda Adichie, she has this awesome speech where she talks about the, the, the danger of a single story, you yeah. know, like making yeah. narratives about people based on our own. So I've lit, you know, we, we, we can all make mistakes and it's always room to get better. You know, I'm, I'm sure every time I go overseas, I have, a, you know, there's ways for me to learn and, and stereotypes I need to, you know, it's a, it's a practice. You have to practice, mm-hmm. you know, I, I hope I've, I hope I'm better now than I was 20 years ago. And when I first started going overseas, but, and some people make bigger mistakes than others, but yeah, I've been there. I've been there with you, Janae, like just, you know, we just quickly make these assumptions and, and then you get checked. But the key is we acknowledge, I think that's the key. Like to mm-hmm. say, like, we're not just like doubling down on it. You know what I mean? When yeah. they still don't know they're doing the sidewalk, they need to, you know what I mean? Versus like, yeah. well, clearly there's something deeper at hand if it's not that they can't or that, you know, maybe, you know, the resources aren't funneled to certain places and, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? It's, it's a, it's a deeper issue. And maybe I shouldn't assume that every, you know, black woman that I see with a child is broke and needs my help, you know? Yeah. And so yeah. we're all trying to just get better and have a good experience. I'm going to ask you to talk about your role with USAID and specifically okay. how you keep perspective. And in my mind, it sounds like on the one hand, you are dealing with people who live in extreme poverty and are, you know, are kind of existing in societies where maybe the systems aren't as strong. Mm-hmm. But then on the other hand, I know you do work around DEIA where you're dealing with people who've come to development work probably with great intentions, but also with like an American savior mentality that might also be frustrating for you to deal with. So how do you, how do you navigate dealing with both of those through your work? So I think on the first side, it's because you're right. Like things can be overwhelming when you choose to do this type of work in development. I think the key is to figure out where you think you can add value pick a thing you want to do and then kind of drill down on where you think you can make a change. Right. Um, and if that's in, in USAID's world, you know, we might have a, you're a certain type of backstop or technical specialty. So I happen to be a democracy and governance officer. Um, I'm doing DEI work now, but when I'm, when I'm abroad, I'm a democracy and governance officer. And so part of that is like human rights portfolio it could be rule of law. It could be elections, things along those lines. So when I was in Senegal, I actually had the human rights portfolio. And one of the things we dealt with was forced child begging. So if you're familiar with Senegal at all, and if you've ever been, you will no doubt have seen like young boys begging in the streets with their little buckets and stuff. Those kids are called Talibes and they are usually sent out from Islamic schools, Dara's, uh, to beg. Mm-hmm. Now, many are not exploited. You know, they just go to school. Begging is was taught as like a, a, they're sent out to beg for moderate periods of time. It's supposed to teach humility and things like that. But then of course you always have folks that will exploit. And so you'll have children who are out there from 7 a.m. to 8, 9, 10 o'clock at night. They oh, have wow. to bring back a dollar, a dollar 50 a day. They're not treated well. Um, sometimes they're abused. They're malnourished. They're dirty. You see kids with ringworm, no shoes. It's really sad. And you have over 30,000 of those types of children in and around Dakar. So mm-hmm. we had a project that worked on that. Now, can we take care of 30,000 kids or address it? No. So what we did was they chose, Dakar has like 20 municipalities, like subsections of the city. And so we worked with like four mayor's offices. And so one of the key things to your point about, and this will kind of answer both, 
that whole idea, the way you can get away from the savior complex is first you need to get the community's buy-in to whatever it is you're trying to do, right? So like the average Senegalese would say, yes, this Taliban thing is out of control. No one wants to see children begging, mistreated, abused. No one wants to see that. These are your children. These are children of your community, right? Mm-hmm. The, the problem that they were, we were running into was that because it's, it's so intertwined with religious teaching, no one wants to question that. Just the same way no one questioned the Catholic church, right? When you have, mm-hmm. that was doing all kinds of stuff. And I remind people of that too. When we started to get in these people, they, you know, excuse me, 50, 60 years hey. of hey. abuse. You know what I'm mm-hmm. saying? <laughs> Lest yeah. we forget, you know, so it's the same type of thing. People don't tend to question religious leaders and things like that, right? So, but the community has to say, okay, well, we need to address this. How are we going to do it? So we partner one of the things I like about the fact of, of working with USAID is that we partner, we partner with the communities to say, okay, hey, what do you guys want to do? What are you thinking? How can we support you in this to address this concern? The way y'all think it needs to be addressed. We can't come in here and tell y'all anything, or at least we shouldn't, mm-hmm. right? And we're here to work with you on that. So I think that's a key. I think good development is working hand in hand and in lockstep with your host nation or your host community, the people that can make a difference, the women of the community, the men of the community, you know, and, and figure out how can, because then that's when it will be sustainable. I can come in and throw a bunch of money at it. We fix it for six months and then we write back to where we started. That's mm-hmm. a waste of everybody's time and money. So you need to figure out something that's going to actually what we call have um, community behavior change where people, just like you look at um, smoking in the U.S., as a nation, we got to the point where it was just no longer tolerated. You, you couldn't smoke in the, you know, you used to smoke mm-hmm. on airplanes. I don't know if you remember that. Like, used to be ashtrays in the, in the, in the handles of, air, of airplanes. You wouldn't oh, dream wow. of doing that now. Like, just that whole concept is completely foreign. Mm-hmm. But as a community, we said, look, too many people are dying from lung cancer. It's, we learned about secondhand smoke. So as a nation, we moved away from accepting cigarette smoke it's rare to even find people who still smoke cigarettes and you got to banish them outside to the back like you know what I mean like <laughs> you know you like you can't smoke yeah. in the house you gotta go to the back the porch and you gotta you know <laughs> they used to have smoking sections in restaurants and then they just got rid of it all together you know so yeah, you almost yeah. want a similar type of behavior change where the community just no longer tolerates whatever it is um, mm-hmm. we're just talking about that type of thing with human rights abuses and things like that so I think that's the key. Now, you do still have, like, one of the things that can be frustrating working with some of my colleagues is this idea of, one of the things I used to see is, like, to infantilize the local population. Like, oh, they don't know any better. They can't possibly, uh, you know, like, they're idiots, right? Yeah. And, and so part of that is, like, well, they not holding people accountable. Well, they don't know. it. And it's like, uh-uh. You know what I mean? Which is interesting because, like, as Black Americans, we almost come off as harder. Because we're like, I'm not giving you a pass because I think you're, no, you know, but, but when, when you have that, like, oh, this nice, this like nice white guy who won't ever question me or kind of lets me get away with whatever, part Mm -hmm. of that is because they fundamentally believe that you don't know any better, right? Or that you can't do better, Mm -hmm. which is inherently problematic, right? And possibly racist, right? (laughs) Like that you don't, you don't think. Possibly definitely racist, but yeah. Definitely (laughs) racist, right. They don't, that you're not even capable. So you know, so dealing with your colleagues with mutual risk. If you're shady, you're shady. If you're not doing what you're supposed to do, you're not doing what you're supposed to do. I'm not going to not tell you that because you are Senegalese or I'm not going to tell you that because, you know, we all have to be held accountable. So you see that type of thing, but but it's couched in niceness, but really it's counter to that, you know, so <laughs> trying to check that. And it's interesting that as a Black American in this work, you'll see a lot of challenges with some of these same 
white colleagues can fawn over their African colleagues and all that, but they don't really deal with us in the same way because mm-hmm. we're actually, it's like they don't see the their African colleagues really as they e- their equals and then, mm-hmm. uh, or we demand that they see us as their equals, right? Like as my yeah. white colleagues. And so some of that, there's a, sometimes there's a tension there, right? Because we're not, it's like, and, and I'm not impressed because you're white. And sometimes you will see that, you know, we talk about the anti-Blackness in the book like anti-blackness is global and you will sometimes feel that even from your African colleagues, right? Mm-hmm. Where they are fawning over and just loving on these your white <laughs> colleagues. And they look, you know, and you're like, what is that about? You know? So it it, it, it can be really interesting dynamics, you know, really, really interesting dynamics with with um with some of these things. These same yeah. people, oh, we just love I'm I'm an African and you know, and it's like, okay, no, you're not. You can be an Africanist, meaning that you appreciate the culture, you love it, you understand it. You're not African. I'm not even African because I'm not from that culture. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm African-American. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? I'm Black American. Yeah. I'm an African-American and I can appreciate my roots. I can connect with them, but I'm not Ghanaian. I'm not Nigerian. I'm not, I can't make that be, but I can have a deep respect for it. And I can understand that my roots, I did my little DNA. I'm 25% Nigerian, you know, and mm-hmm. great, but that's, you know, but. I also understand, like, I don't know, you know, I can't, I don't have a, a father or a grandfather that I can point back to to say that's from, you know, this, this state and, and wherever, you know what I mean? Yeah, so yeah. Like, yeah. It's just that, that concept. So it's, it's um a lot of interesting dynamics that, that play out when I think you're black in these spaces in development. And I actually have a question about that. Let me, did I skip over the question? Did I not type the question out? So really, it was the question was about how living in Africa and navigating some of the spaces that you have mm-hmm. have impacted your relationship to Blackness, the idea of Blackness. Mm-hmm. I think it's broadened it, right? Like, first of all, I just think Black is beautiful. I would not want to come back as anything else. And I just think I love all the textures of us, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and like culturally and and what we look like and and what we're into and and I can appreciate the diversity of blackness and I think that's coming from one one because like growing up in Brooklyn and you're seeing all types of black folks going to an HBCU and you're seeing all types of black folks like whatever your interest is I always talk you know at FAM because it's a pretty big school like when I was there it was like 13,000 students it's pretty big I was in student government like I was on student supreme court so you had the you had the SGA, you know, student government crew. Then you have all the Greek crews and then you had the band crew and then you had gospel choir. You had, you know, whatever you were into, you could find your folk, you know. And I think mm-hmm. sometimes it's just, as a society, they try to box us in, especially in the United States. You, you can only be you have to be this to be black. And mm-hmm. I think when you start to expand your world especially amongst Black people, then you don't buy into that as much. And that's, I think, like, even as African-Americans going to an HBCU is important, especially if you hadn't grown up in, like, Black schools and you went to a lot of majority schools, you definitely get forced, you know, you you're, you get a narrative that you're special, you're unique, if you're unique. And yes, if yes. you are smart or interested in, in school. And I think if that isn't shaken, you come into like the real world thinking every other black person is an idiot and you're some unique unicorn, 
that is so, you know, and it's like, no, it's plenty of smart black folk that are interested in all kinds of things. You know what I mean? So that's the danger too, is that you get African-Americans who believe that narrative. They really do. And I think that's very dangerous Mm -hmm. for us as as a people. So I think- I have I have found that as an adult, I had I had and have so much to unpack from from being exactly what you said mm-hmm. and like, oh, maybe if I had gone to an HBCU, I wouldn't have be- internalized this thought of, oh, I'm the exception and blackness is this. And let me right. stay away from it because it's not good. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. A lot of us, yeah, and 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 you see that a lot, and it's unfortunate. But the good thing is, like you know, you recognize it and see. Because I mean, at the end of the day, too, when you start working and getting out into the real world, you'll you'll learn it quickly, right? <laughs> that you have to adjust, uh, and you know, or you should adjust, um, because that that whole like unicorn thing is usually not true. And then especially like the idea that like. <laughs> Yeah, I was like, I, I can't get in trouble on this podcast, but there's just a lot of <laughs> mediocre white folk that get to thrive. I'm going to just say that, you know, and mm. no questions asked. And you have to be a superwoman yeah. or superman and in some of these spaces. But they could just fall forward. I've just seen it so many times. Mess up, get promotion, mess up. Oh, let me try over here. We mess that up. You know what I mean? Versus mm. we out the door. You know what I mean? <laughs> and I used to work in the grievance department at the department. Of the I had seen some. Oh, oh. So you see how people get treated differently. You see how they get treated differently. And just, you know, stories amongst amongst folks. So, yeah, it's just, and that's just across the board. Like, you know, we all, we all know the deal. You know, yeah. what we can, you know, we're raised, we, you know, you understand, like, what you can, you know, your parents tell you early on, you cannot get away with some of the same things your counterparts can get away with. And that stands, that holds true in the work environment as well. What's frustrating, which I'm, listeners, just go on this, enjoy the detours that we're on this day. But <laughs> <Right>. um, <laughs> from, from my experience, being that person in a position where I don't, I still don't have the words for it. Is it my, is it internalized person? I don't know what it is, but basically me thinking about my colleagues, like, no, 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 don't give yourself that much slack because they're not giving you that much slack. I need you to be on your P's and Q's here, right? Which, you know, it's unfortunate, but. Well, anyway. I, I, I wouldn't say that as, as the internalized racism, I think that's you being very conscious of the realities, right? Like, that's just the reality. Like there's a thing where what should be and then what is, you know, just understanding that, yes, if, if this person messes up this way and you mess up this way, in theory, you should both have the same punishment or, or lack thereof. Mm-hmm. But in reality, you will likely get punished or demoted yes. or written up in yes. a way that somebody else may not. Yes. And you need to be conscious of that. Like don't go into things because then you're surprised, you know, and it's like, oh, I don't, I didn't understand why. Yeah, well. The history will tell you what's likely to happen. And it still exists. You know, it still exists. It may not be as um blatant and obvious, but um, but it certainly still exists. So I was on Instagram the other day and someone had written this post about seven reasons you should move to Ghana as an African-American. And one of them is that you've never experienced a life apart from racism. Can you speak to that and to people who maybe read that and thought, yeah, I need to move to Ghana immediately to escape racism? 
So I think when people say like, I want to escape racism, I think it's some of that, like the consequences of like, just how racist and how violent our society is in the United States. And so then, yes, you're not having those daily potential, like there's a certain level of, of anxiety that we live with, whether we're conscious of it or not, <laughs> because, you know, a cop pulls behind you and we're going to feel it differently than like a white guy would. He's probably not, he's like, oh damn, I got to get a ticket. We're like, is this going to go left? And now he's pulling out a gun because I moved too quick to get the phone. You know what I mean? Like what we're concerned about is different and, and the, 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 uh, the consequences are much more dire. Now, when I talk about in the book about the anti-Blackness, you will have experiences, many, and maybe you've had some too, where you're given, you're not given priority or like they'll ignore you, but they'll go to the white or Lebanese person and entertain them or different status of treatment. And, and they're going to, they see these white people as, <laughs> I saw that in Cameroon, you saw it in, you know, uh, you come into the room and yes. they automatically go to uh -huh. the white person to hit, hand them the check. That's the mm -hmm. person who has the money or whatever. Yeah. And yeah. then we get is when we see that because we're like WTF like what is this I'm here you know because it's like know. what yeah. you know but I I, I, I guarantee yeah. you spend at least six months and you're gonna have some level of that and that's a way you know you're like oh darn yeah that's right because they're gonna they're getting the same messages as everybody else white mm -hmm. people have money they deserve to have privilege or they're the ones who have um decision making power or you know what I mean? Let mm -hmm. me cater to that group before I cater to you as another Black person. Mm -hmm. And so that can be offensive because, you you know, what is that about? But that happens. It's real. It's real. And and so the, the question is how you're going to deal with it. Sometimes I check it. You know, I'll I'll say something like, oh, you don't see me standing here? Oh, he, you know, and especially as Black Americans, sometimes we're more likely to be vocal about that because we see <laughs> it and we'll call it out in a way that others may not. But yeah, sometimes it's not worth it. You're not even going to get into it. Other times you you should stand up and say something because sometimes they're, they're not even conscious of what they're doing, right? It's just mm -hmm. kind of standard of, of the practices. You pay attention to this. But I yeah, I got some definite stories about that type of stuff. So it's sometimes a little micro stuff and then sometimes it can be pretty pretty um in your face and pretty mm -hmm. direct. But it definitely does, it can happen. And a lot of times it does happen, but it doesn't, you know, it shouldn't spoil the entire taste in your mouth. Just understand that across this globe, including sometimes on the continent, that happens. Wow, that was a lot. And there's more because Noel also during our conversation talked a little bit about connecting to culture through literature and also through language. And it was just so, she spoke with such eloquence and also such insight. I decided to capture that and release it as a bonus. So stay tuned because next week you'll be hearing more from Noel and myself in a mini episode with that content. For my closing reflection for this episode, I just want to lift up that as humans, from the time we're young, we get cues from our parents, from the people around us, from the media, from broader society about who we are, how we should be, our place in the world, you know, whether we're pretty whether we're overweight, just all these things. We, we come into this world and are programmed with, with thoughts that shape our views of ourselves and of, of people around us. And then if we choose to live consciously, if something prompts us to, 
to move in that direction, one of the tasks before us becomes starting to unpack what that stuff is that was programmed into our brains from those earlier years and then deciding what we want to do with that. What do I want identity and community and belonging to mean for me? The connections I make to people, the things I like, the things I do, the places I want to be, who I want to spend my time with, of course, is bigger than one aspect of my identity. I think changing the world, whatever that looks like, has to come from an expansive place, a place where if there are boxes, because we're humans and, and that's how we think and that's how we are, we at least recognize how to break them down, how to invite others in, how to reach out, how to connect across these artificial boundaries that we, that we create. So if, if you've listened to this conversation, whether you're Black or not, I feel like the invitation is to reflect on what forms your sense of self, of belonging, of identity, of community, and whatever those things are, are they things that you would choose on purpose? All right, on that note, talk to you next time. Peace. Hey, before you go, if you want to, one, keep up with my blog, which I do post on sporadically, two, hear about my latest workshops and events, or three, learn more about my work as a facilitator and a coach, then I invite you to check out my website, www.gilmorefacilitationllc.com, and sign up for my email list. Until next time, remember, you're part of a beautiful community of people who want to change the world.